Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John? So last year, uh, last year, <laughs> oh, last week we finished the Gospel of John. And this week we're beginning uh, a, an exposition. It's going to be a flyover because we're just doing it in about five weeks. So this is just, this won't be as, as uh, detailed as some of our other studies, but hopefully this will be a blessing to you. Um, it's just a great follow-up from the Gospel of John. And this is in your notes. Uh, you remember the, the Gospel of John, the main point was John 5.31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, John, does, does, he just really helps us again in 1 John by making it pretty easy to find the main point in 1 John as well. And you see it in chapter 5, verse 13. So listen, listen to how he's picking up with where he left off. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. So we're going to see in, in the book of 1 John is John is going to give us a way to know. John's going to give us a way to have assurance about being a Christian. And that doesn't come from a pastor. Just when you pray a prayer, and as a well-intentioned pastor or a well-intentioned parent, it's just so easy. Oh, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Well, we point back to the Scripture and let the Scripture speak. Let God speak for himself, right, in terms of our salvation. And 1 John does a great job of letting us hear from the Lord about the assurance of genuine salvation. And so this is in your notes as well. There is a doctrinal distinctive for authentic Christianity that reveals a right belief about Jesus. So be listening for that through this study. You're going to be continually hearing that there is a doctrinal distinctive for authentic Christianity. And it reveals a right belief about Jesus. Secondly, there is a moral distinctive about authentic Christianity, and it reveals a right obedience to Christ and his word. So doctrinal focused on the person and work of Jesus. Moral is because we believe that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit makes himself home in your heart. He makes you alive to God. And thus, because of love, there is a desire to obey the Lord. And then third, there's a relational distinctive to authentic Christianity. And that reveals a right love for Christ, but not just for Jesus. A lot of people can say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. But meanwhile, they hate their brother. You're going to hear that in, in the study. Um, there's a relational distinctive to authentic Christianity that reveals a right love for Christ and a right love for his people. Because when Jesus saves someone, he changes hearts. He changes hearts. The Bible knows no such thing as believing in Jesus with no change in life. It just does not know any such thing. And I think John will, the book of 1 John will talk to us about that. The Bible just doesn't teach a Christianity that has no doctrinal foundation centered on Christ. It doesn't teach a Christianity that has no regard for obeying God out of love for him. And pays little to no attention to sin. Bible doesn't have any category for that. Bible doesn't teach a Christianity that doesn't demonstrate a changed heart and that Christ's saving presence is seen by the way you love God's people. That's the way you see it. That's the way you see it. 
We could say that the goal of the Gospel of John was conversion as to how we are saved. We could say that the goal of 1 John is assurance. So conversion is the Gospel of John. Assurance. Um, so that you can know you are saved. And I think the flip side would be true too. There's a lot of people who assume they're saved. There's a lot of people who presume they're saved. Not because of any doctrinal view of Jesus. Not because of any, maybe because of tradition. They've kind of created their own idea of Christianity. And a book like 1 John can kind of get in that person's face in a loving way to say, hmm, man, your idea of Christianity doesn't line up with what the Bible says Christianity is. In fact, I would even encourage you, if you know somebody that would say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but you're just concerned about the, the, the just overall life patterns in this person's life. You know what? It's a great thing to just read the Bible one-to-one with someone. First John is a great book to read with somebody that very likely could either lead them to an assurance of salvation or a conviction Oh my goodness, I was trusted in my good works. I was trusted in my parents' faith. I was trusted in whatever, right? And I want to trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Um, so in this study, we're excited for you not to only hear from our elders and to not only hear from our elder candidate, Eric. Um, we are excited for you to hear from a couple of the men in our leadership development group in this series as well. That's exciting to us, guys, because one of our prayers as elders is how can we most glorify God by the way we pastor a growing church? So we're aware that God is growing us numerically, but what, what that we're not looking so much at numbers as much as we are, how do we pastor you well? I mean, what, what, we, we don't want to become this a church that kind of drifts into well, I guess the way we handle numbers is we increase programs. Well, programs are great. And if they're the byproduct of pastoring, that's great. But we don't want you to be pastored by a program. We want you to be pastored by men with Christ-like character and a gifting to teach and preach. And so we're excited that God has put some men in our, in our lives and in our church's life um, that are asking to be evaluated as to whether there's a pastoral call in their life. You know, the best gifts that we think we can leave for you, as, you know, from one generation to the next. Because any pastor, in, I don't know how long that pastor serves, any pastor is an interim pastor, right, in the big picture. And one of the best ways we can get, be gifting you a bright future is to, one, equip you for the work of ministry, right, that's one of the best gifts we can give you, for you to know how to read the Bible, for you to know how to study the Bible, um, to equip you for ministry and for mission. And the other best gift that we can give you is a growing base of leaders, particularly in the pastoral realm. All leaders, the gift of leadership is huge. So those gifts would go a long way to ensure that you are well-pastored and discipled as our church grows. So, as we read, we're going to read John 1. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 2. So we're going to read that entire swath this morning. And as we read it, be, be looking for, okay, be intentional readers. Be looking for the doctrinal distinctive. Be looking for the moral distinctive. And be looking for the relational distinctive, because they all show themselves, just even in the first chapter. Would you stand with me? And let's, let's follow in the reading 
of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Wow, my voice cracked, didn't it? I sound like I'm 15 or 12 or I don't know what that was. I guess I was just excited about joy. That's good news, you guys. We don't have a God who sucks on lemons. He loves to give joy to us in Jesus. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, but if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, oh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Oh God, do the work that you intended this book to have on the human heart. God, for those who are lacking assurance about their salvation, would you give them the grace of assurance, not as revealed by a preacher, but as revealed in the scriptures. Let them hear your voice, we pray. God, if there's anyone in here that's just been just a church attender, just a churchgoer, religious, uh, Lord, but they've never met you as Lord and Savior, would you use this book to lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And God, would you use this to strengthen our fellowship as a church family? You really highlight fellowship here and And God, we don't want to just be, we don't want to have 2901 West Kansas as the biggest thing we have in common once a week. God, we want to be sons and daughters of the Father experiencing you in gospel community with each other. So please, would you strengthen our fellowship with you and with one another? To you be the glory, Lord. We thank you and love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, so here's a question. Question going to be followed by a confession. So I'm not just picking on you about this. How do you respond when you commit sin? Do you respond when you commit sin? How do you respond? Do you respond? Do you even call it a sin versus calling it a mistake? Is sin part of your vocabulary or are you more the mistake person? If you do call it a sin, do you minimize sin by saying things like, well, everyone struggles with that? Or thinking it wasn't serious because it was just a little sin. Pequeño, it was just little. Or if it was something that you said placing it, and placing it in the category, so you sinned and you, the sin was coming out your words, but you say, I really didn't mean it. I was just kidding. Are the sins we commit after becoming a Christian somehow less sinful than the ones we committed before we were Christians? To believe that Jesus died in order to forgive all my sins, past, present, and future, does that mean I no longer have to confess? Does that mean I no longer have to repent of my sins to God or to anybody? Because they're already forgiven. Well, last Sunday, I sadly and very publicly gave you a great illustration of someone who minimized his sin. And here is how it was brought to my attention. I was asking one of our leaders this week about last week's sermon. Not only about what I said, I, I get concerned when I have to say something pretty directly to you Am I sounding just like I'm an angry pastor, a grumpy grandpa? I just get concerned about that. I'm concerned about content and context, but I'm also concerned about tone. Because God is the great one about tone, isn't he? And I just want to be more like him in, in the content and even in the way he speaks and his heart toward us. And So I specifically asked about last week when I talked about the difference between uh, being triggered by the painful circumstances surrounding our past sins versus viewing that as, as turning to God because of his prickly providence, redeeming our painful past. When my friend said he thought my tone in that section of the sermon was fine, but he didn't stop there, which is a good friend. He said he was concerned about my tone when I spoke to Jan during the sermon. Were you? You're welcome to call me, guys. <laughs> Jan welcomes you to call me, too, if I do that. Um, so Jan, if you weren't here, now, is it, I just had this thought this morning. I bet we're going to get more people watching last week's sermon now, because you're going to go back. Let's <laughs> see what happened. <laughs> Jan. Jan thought the phrase prickly providence was very helpful, and in her excitement about it, she burst out to say, that was really good. Did you come up with that? And I started to tell her how I came to use that phrase, and after a sentence or two, I realized I needed to get back to the sermon, and abruptly said, you remember what I said? <sighs> you know, if you mark my transgressions... Uh, <laughs> Marcus, I needed to mark it because I was not, I wasn't seeing it the way it should have been seen. I said, I said something to the effect of, honey, this is my time. Do you remember? 
it didn't quite sit right with me. But here's how I handled it. She knew I was just kidding. She knew I didn't mean anything by it. It was just a mistake. Well, in the eyes of my friend, it wasn't just a mistake. And so I went back to Jan. I had mentioned it, something to her last week. And she, you know, Jan is, <laughs> Jan is very secure. <laughs> I'm so glad because, uh, well, anyway, let me finish what I've got here. So <laughs> I went back to Jan to draw her out about what I did. And she said, well, actually, you know, if you want to talk about it, it was hurtful. And it was public. And then she said, but I've already forgiven you. <laughs> Great, I'm glad you've forgiven me. Um, but that really made me see something. You know, I'm just really getting my eyes opened. So I want you to know that I've confessed my sin to her. But not just for, it wasn't just an I'm sorry. I'm trying to follow what this text says. Because it talks about if we confess our sins, there's a specificity that the, the Bible really would indicate that we're supposed to have when we confess sin. The general, I'm sorry, it, again, there's a specific, there's, there's a specific confession of sin because we need specific change in our hearts. And when I just say, oh, I'm sorry, I am totally ignoring and minimizing the fact that really I need some heart work here. So I want you to know I've confessed my sin to her as the sins of disrespect, dishonor. I was demeaning what I said. It was unkind. It lacked patience. It lacked self-control. And I was affected by the fear of man because I, it's crazy how these thoughts can come rushing in, even in the midst of trying to preach a sermon. I was worried about what you were thinking more than I was worried about loving my wife the way Christ loves the church. I'm thankful for her forgiveness. And as I asked for her forgiveness this morning, I asked for your forgiveness for misrepresenting Christ to you because Jesus would not speak to his bride the way I spoke to my bride. And I'm sorry that I was not a better example of Christ's love during that moment. So I want to say something to the kids. So kids, if you're third grade and up to, to senior high, would you stand for a minute? This is to honor you. This isn't to embarrass you. This is to honor you. So look, can you look, at, look up at me? Look up at me. So last Sunday, in the way I treated Miss Jan, I proved again why your pastor needs a savior. I sinned against her. And the last thing I want to do is be a bad example to you guys. So I'm sorry to you guys that I wasn't a better example of the love of Jesus. And will you forgive me too? Well, maybe, maybe next week you'll forgive me. <laughs> but, um, but think about it and go ahead and be seated, guys. I love you to pieces. So as I studied the passage for this morning, it was, it was easy for me to see how when I minimize my sin or I act like I didn't sin, it affects fellowship. I wasn't, there was something that was just weird between me and God during the week. And for sure, as the week went on, it was weird between me and Jan. It affects that kind of fellowship. So here's our main point for this morning. And we, we just draw it out of the text. If we walk in the light of Christ's truth and love, 
We have fellowship with God and with one another. So let's unpack that as we go through the book of 1 John. Uh, background here, this is about 60 years uh, since John's salvation is what the theologians and historians estimate. Some think he was in his 80s or 90s at this point. Other disciples, he's, seen, he's either seen or heard about their martyrdom. Just martyred for Christ, martyred for Christ, martyred for Christ. But God gave John a long life. And John, along with many other Christians, left Jerusalem just prior to its destruction at the hands of Rome and settled either in or near Ephesus. So that's where he would have been at this time. And it was a tough time in Ephesus, guys. False teachers had arose to the way Jesus was warning them they would. False teachers arose from inside the church who began to teach that Jesus was not the incarnate Son of God. Many of these false teachers were suggesting that there were other ways to a true knowledge of God other than Jesus. They believed they had secrets that even the apostles didn't know. And you couldn't experience joy in the deep things of God unless you learned those secrets from them, even if they were contrary to Scripture. And they taught that it didn't matter what you did with your body, as it was temporary and fading away. What you really needed to focus on was your spirit, your mind, your soul, because that was permanent. Nurture your mind. Grow your mind. Don't worry about the body. Don't worry about all that stuff. What you need is more education. What you need is more science to develop more things. We just, just so many ways that could be expressed. Don't worry about your flesh. But also, so it wasn't just false teaching. It was persecution. The persecution was rising up again. Herod Agrippa had some persecution that was going on in the, the early days when the, birth, the church was birthed. Nero then came along with a second wave of persecution. And now, at this time in John's life, Domitian was the third wave of persecution. So, guess what's happening? You've got persecution rising, and you've got false teaching. And, and, and things are getting shaken up. And there begins to be a... a pretty mass exodus out of the church. Could that still happen today? Yeah. Is it still happening today? I Probably so. Guys, there's been so much hate. I mean, it's just, just, it seems like every week gets worse. There's just more hate being spewed. It's not just what's going on with Israel. I mean, just with the Speaker of the House, the new Speaker of the House. I mean, when he was first voted in, he's a strongly professing believer. When he was first voted in, remember, even Democrats were saying, you know, we have different political views, but he's a really nice guy. Well, they quit saying that. They're, they're saying some pretty harsh things about how, how horrential, I mean, terrible his faith is and divisive his faith is. And so when there's persecution and false teaching, you know what people need? People need assurance. People need care. People need someone to come alongside them to say, hey, listen, let's go back to, to the Word of God. Let's experience the love of God again together. That's, that's, that's how we're going to get through this. The word know is used 40 times in five chapters. <laughs> the word remain or abide in what you know is used 21 times. The phrase, that you may know, or by this we know, 16 times. God bless you. Also that we can have assurance of our faith. And even more, even more. Not just assurance of our faith. Assurance of God's faithfulness. 
Isn't that even better? Because my faith can fail. But his faithfulness will never fail, and he will hold us fast. So let's just kind of peruse this a little bit, the doctrinal test. And you're going to really see that in the first two verses in John 1 and 2. Jesus is the eternal word of life. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's really just kind of repeating in this prologue what he said in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is reminding his readers again that Jesus himself is the word of life. Jesus himself is the message we proclaim. And he is eternal. Did you see what he's saying there? He said he was in the beginning because really we could say he was in the beginning at creation. But, but to, be, to be there at creation, it meant that he himself would have to have no beginning. Because someone has to exist before the beginning. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> A lot of people, I don't think about that. Someone had to exist before the beginning of all things. Someone who was creating all things. And John is saying, Jesus was that someone. He is eternal. He was in the beginning at creation because he himself had no beginning. And he was, in fact, the one who created all things. Even the tree that became the cross that Jesus died on, Jesus made. Jesus, God the Son, has always been with God the Father for all eternity. That's what we're learning in those first two verses. And like he did in the gospel when he said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is very much saying the same thing here. Did you notice? Here's how he said it here. We've seen him. <laughs> We've heard him. We've touched him with our hands. We've even eaten the breakfast he made for us at the beach. It's great. So this is refuting this Gnostic view that the body is nothing. No, the body is not nothing. Jesus became man, had a human body, dignified that human body, showed the importance of the human body, suffered and died in that very real human body for our very real sins. What a Savior. He and the apostles were eyewitnesses. But that's not the only thing John is saying. He's saying what we saw, what we touched, what we heard was the eternal Son of God. So it's easy to just to kind of just get our apologetics all in a row and talk about the importance of eyewitnesses. But let's don't forget what they were eyewitnesses of. This is the eternal Son of God incarnate in Christ. That's why he's so excited about telling you. He's made himself manifest to us. And not only did we see all of his miracles and heard all of his teaching, we saw him die on the cross to be punished for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have a new life in his name. God doesn't only sovereignly create all things. He's also the God of sovereign grace who gives a changed heart to those he saves and a new life to everyone who puts their trust in him. You thought creation was amazing. New creation is more amazing. Your being born again is way more amazing. And if you, nothing is hard for God, but in my mind, I think it's way harder for God to deal with some, some cha-cha man like me, some 
sinner who is in rebellion with him, who wanted nothing to do with him. In, when, in creation, he just created the world out of nothing. With me, he's got to overcome my enmity, which was no problem for him. But to me, that, that was a bigger challenge. Making me new in Christ was a way bigger thing to me than, me, than God creating the heavens and the earth. That's why I'm grateful for, for my salvation. He's the only one who can give that new life through the preaching of his word. And it's this sovereign and saving grace, John says, we proclaim it to you. Second point, the relational test. So did you see? So it's very quick, but he was giving us the doctrinal test. Do you believe those things about Jesus? Because you will not be an authentic Christian unless you are believing the specific things God has said about his authentic son. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. So verses 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Well, why are we doing that? So that you may have fellowship with us. Oh, here's the relational test. Well, why? Well, what's the source of fellowship, guys? Is it just that we all were excited, the Rangers? Boy, Texas just got a little closer for a little bit, maybe two days. <laughs> the Rangers World Series champions are the Cowboys going to beat the Eagles today? <laughs> I wish some of you guys could hear a couple of things I hear up here. Actually, I'm glad you can't hear some of the things I, I hear up here. Um, guys, what is the core for fellowship? What is it? Because we all want it. Don't we? Don't you want to be known by somebody who still loves you anyway? The doctor, the foundation of our fellowship with each other is our common fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what John is highlighting for us. Guys, Christian fellowship is not possible unless we have a common belief and relationship in Jesus Christ. Fellowship with each other is, is possible only if we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Our fellowship as Christians is the result of a new life that we all share. We're a new people. In fact, the Bible, did you know the Bible really describes us as a new humanity? We're a new people. We are a new humanity. Christian fellowship is this spiritual and loving relationship founded upon our common experience of the person and work of Jesus in saving us from our sins. That's where we have most in common. That's where we can experience the deepest love and care. And it starts with marriage, and it's supposed to be filled in our parenting. That the deepest love we'll ever experience with each other is a common love with him. You've seen me do the goofy triangle illustration before with a husband over here and a wife over here, and, and they want to get closer, but it seems like the harder they try to get closer this way, the more they fight, and it just seems like, what is, what's the use? We, we have irreconcilable differences. Well, yeah, if you're going to just stare at each other all the time. How about if the husband grows closer to the Lord? How about if the wife grows closer to the Lord? Well, look what happens to their proximity. They grow closer to each other. Are you feeling distant from your spouse? How much it, uh, that you're thinking it's your spouse rather than, and you're not realizing, I need a closer walk with Jesus. I need to go closer to him. It's, it's a real spiritual fellowship with God as Father, Christ as Savior and Brother, Holy Spirit as our friend and comforter. 
One of the things false teachers were saying is that you could have a relationship with God without Jesus. That you could have a relationship with God. You could call yourself a Christian without any change to your life. Without a love for God. Without a love for His glory. Without a love for other believers. And without a love for lost people. Has He come to make His home in you? Authentic belief in gospel doctrine, you've heard us say this before, should result in genuine gospel community. The gospel of Christ's love plus safety plus time. That's the way Ray Ortland describes gospel community. So that, guys, we want that so much for our church. If I could, if I could recognize who is newer, if you're a new member, a new attender, oh, I wish I could just kind of have just a moment with you. We so want you to experience fellowship. Not camaraderie, mainly, merely. We want you to experience fellowship because God changes. He promotes sanctification in fellowship with each other. A shared burden is half a burden when you're in fellowship with one another. A shared joy is double the joy when you're in fellowship with one another. One of the ways we do that is through discipleship groups. And so I'd, I want to encourage you, if you have not uh, visited a discipleship group, and you, if you wanted to, if they were on the right nights and days and all that kind of stuff, you, if you wanted to, you could visit multiple of them to, to you know, find one that, that you feel like that would be a good fit for you. Not to just be with people every other week, but to do this together. Grow closer to the Lord. So we can grow closer as a church family because the world will know we're Christians because of growing closer to the Lord and in our love for each other, right? And so you see that relational dynamic happening even in this, this talk about fellowship. It's not just D groups. Our kids, our, our children in, in children's ministry, they're hearing the gospel, so they're hearing that doctrinal distinctive, but they're also getting to experience living, breathing Christians who love them and who want their lives to be an example to them. Youth ministry, men's and women's ministry, outreach and mission. Though we're reaching the lost, it's an amazing thing to work together for the for, for the cause of the gospel. You know how close you get when you're willing to get on the streets or go, go across the street or do something in your neighborhood with some other believers. You get close. It's just the coolest thing. John Stott put it this way. This verse is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism and church life. We cannot be content with an evangelism that does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church nor with a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, he closes that, we talked about joy. We're writing these things to you because this is how God wants to fill us with joy, to make our joy complete. Our joy is to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Our joy in fellowship with one another is, is sharing in all that he is for us. The forgiveness we forget that we need and, and need to confess. The help we need to overcome sins. Do you notice the order? I think the order is very strategic in this. Verse 1, it's about the message. Verses 1 and 2, it's about what we proclaim. There's a message we proclaim. Verse 3 is about a shared life because of that message. And verse 4 is about joy that comes from all of that. The message and a shared life and joy. Have you been lacking in joy? Well, 
what would this be saying to you? Are you regularly submitting yourself to that message? Not just in your devotions, but in the, in the gathering of God's people. And is, are those two things, proclamation and community, are you experiencing a resurgence of joy because of how much God loves you? Third is the moral test. This is the obedience to God and confession of sin. I'm putting these two things together because, I, well, the Scripture puts them together. So, so as we go into this last section, guys, authentic gospel doctrine in Christ and authentic gospel culture filled with the love of Christ are to play a major role in spurring us on to obedience in Christ. So do you notice, I don't think it's an accident, that they major on fellowship right before they start talking about sin. What does that mean to you? I don't need fellowship. I think what it means to me a lot of times, I don't need fellowship to overcome my sin problems. How's that working for me? Not very good. Not very good. This is supposed to be a place where we can experience God's love together in recognizing sin and overcoming it and saying no to it and helping someone else to follow the Lord more closely. Experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit together. When we have sinned against Christ, it's experiencing afresh how he's forgiven us for that sin too. What a great thing. How are you doing on your war against sin and how is it related to your fellowship with the body? In this section, John addresses an essential part of authentic Christianity. That's a love-motivated pursuit of obedience to God and his word. Now, so now this is a moral thing. This is about obedience. This is just, oh, there's so many things. that I'll just tell you the way this was hitting me. How often am I very intentional about in my devotions of just saying, God, I want to obey you today. Help me obey you today. When I'm reading my scriptures, is there, is there in the text I'm reading a command that is, is saying, you need to do this. You need to forgive. You need to be patient. You need to love. You need, am I being intentional? Am I saying, dear God, I need, thank you for saying that to me. I need grace. I know you're going to give me grace for that. I need the filling of the Spirit. I know you'll fill me with the Spirit. But I want to be intentional about wanting to be obedient. I don't know that I'm always thinking that way. Um, now, so it's important in this, in this section to remember that, that even though someone wants to follow Christ in obedience, there's also a reminder that he's always on this side of heaven going to have a war between the flesh and the spirit. There's always going to be a war between the flesh and the spirit. So you, and you can have a great intention to obey. And you do obey. But what if you sin? Do genuine Christians sin? And this answers that. Yeah, they do. So it's, 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 it's not because they have to, but it's because we're weak. And we take our eyes off of Jesus. We're just like Peter. We take a few steps on the water and then we start noticing everything else. Squirrel City. I mean, we're noticing the wind and the waves and the paycheck and the sickness and we sink. So yeah, we can turn our eyes off of the Lord. But isn't it great? He never lets go of us. We may turn our eyes off him, but he's just watching it. He's just holding us. You're looking that way. Hello, I'm right here. Can you imagine God? The goofiness that I would turn away from someone of perfect love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, and I would think something else is, is more worth paying attention to? 
Wow. That's why I'm a chacha man. So, th- so he goes in this and he says, this is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness. He's the light of holiness and truth and judgment and salvation and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. He's got the light of righteousness and adoption and strength and wisdom and endurance and guidance and mission. Verse 6 says, if we have fellowship with him, if we have that new life because we've put our trust in Christ and his work in our lives... That, that, and it's revealed with the desire to love him and obey him and rejoice in him and to love his people and to share him with others. If we say, so that's what fellowship means. It's, it's not just a get together. It's not just a little party. It's, it's a fellowship with him and it's a fellowship with each other. But then he says, if you say you have fellowship, but you're walking in darkness. So he's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking not, not talking about an oops. He's not talking about any, anything like that. He's not talking about just the struggles of sanctification that we all experience. He's talking about walking in darkness as a lifestyle. Every part of your life, the way you view marriage, the way you view parenting, the way you view money, the way you view government, the way you view education, all of it would be put in the category of the darkness it's all the values that are antithesis of, of Christianity. So if you're walking in darkness, you cannot say you have fellowship with him. You're lying and you don't practice the truth. And it affects fellowship with God and others. Verse 7, if we walk, here's a lifestyle again, in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. Being in fellowship with God means we have, we have an ongoing and persevering desire. To live a life that is increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly pleasing to him. And even when we walk in the light, we fall short. And isn't it good news? The penalty for that sin was paid for too. I'm so thankful for that. The dominion of sin to keep us permanently its slave is broken. But the presence of sin in this world and in our flesh is ongoing. And when we do sin, we are so thankful that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from those sins too, aren't we? And this pursuit of godliness and knowledge of forgiveness grows our fellowship with each other. So he gives a couple more examples. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. It's that, it's that mentality. What I've done in my body is not an issue. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. How about this? Have you ever said anything like this or heard people say this? The real me is the spiritual me. I no longer have to contend uh, with, with sin because I'm forgiven. I'm, I know I'm a child of God. Or how about apologies like this? I'm sorry that hurt you. Is that, a, is, that a, is, that a, is that a confession? Is that repentance? Let me ask you that. I guess maybe for someone it could be if they were going to follow up with some other sentences. Let me ask you that because this is all over the world. A sports guy, a politician, or whatever. Well, I'm sorry if that hurt anyone. That's, that's, yeah. You know what's sorry? That confession. That's what's sorry. If you say, I'm sorry I hurt you. Oh, I'm sorry it hurt you. You know what you're doing? Who are you locating the blame on? It's not me. I'm sorry that hurt you. That's the real problem. You just get hurt too easily. 
really wasn't that big a deal, but I'm sorry you got hurt. You made any confessions like that? I have. Or how about this? That wasn't the real me. Deep down, I'm a good person. Could also mean someone who doesn't think they need to confess sin that they've, they've committed. They don't even count it as sin. They count it as something I need to work harder to fix. So they're really not going to God about it. It's very legalistic. I, I don't, I'm not going to confess that to, to God. I'm not going to confess it to other people. I'm just going to work harder to try to fix it. How's that working for you? I mean, there's so many ways we do things that are just so sad. Or we fall short because we think, oh, well, if I would have had more information or education or the right parents or the right school or the right neighborhood, if I would have had more of that, I wouldn't have done these sins. And that's a whole problem with the heart, isn't it? Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That would be the category of saying, I'm gonna, I've made mistakes, not that I've sinned. I'm not who I want to be. I've had some failures, or I'm broken, or I'm just not perfect. I'm not really doing the bad stuff. It's just what everyone does. In, this, in verse 10, he's talking about specific sins. In verse 8, he's talking about just this overall sense that you're just not a sinner in your whole nature. But this one's talking about specific sins. And this is why I said that there needs to be specific confession Guys, when you sin, do you, just, is, do you just go tunnel visioned in that the only thing necessary in my life right now is a confession of wrongdoing? That's the only thing necessary. I would say no. One act of sin is way more serious than you think. Because one act of sin is a statement, at that moment at least, it's a statement of what you think of God. That's the big issue. And isn't it great that God forgives us for that obnoxious, fist-in-his-face view? Later on in 1 John, it's going to call sin lawlessness. So it's, it's, you know, the scriptures talk about if you've committed one sin, it's though you're guilty of all, of, of breaking them all, of all the commandments. You know why? It's because one sin is a statement to the God who gave all the commandments. It's a statement about Him. And his goodness or lack of goodness, or his kindness or lack of kindness, or his power or lack of power. That's what sin is. That's why it's so serious, because it's birthed in a problem in here. It's not just your vocabulary. And so that's what John is getting at here. But the end of this is so awesome. I just love how this this ends. Um, uh, Verse 9. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So can I ask a couple things? Do you regularly confess sin? If not, are you by default saying, I have no sin? Are you regularly repentant? If not, are you by default saying, I have no sin to repent of? There's so much we have to confess. So much we need to forgive. Husbands and wives, how good are you at actually confessing specific sin to each other? 
And in repentance saying, I've even been praying about how I could not commit that against you again. If you're not, what's the silence saying? I have no sin. It's serious, isn't it? But what's more serious is if we confess our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. My little children, do you see that? Isn't that great in chapter 2? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why do we know he's, gonna, he's just to forgive us our sin? Eric, why don't you bring the team back up? Why do we know he's just to forgive us of our sins? Well, we just read it. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiator of our sins. Propitiation means that, he, that on his death on the cross, all our sins on him were laid. And all those sins were fully paid. The wrath of God. You don't think God is angry at sin? Parents, you ever get angry about the way your kids are treated? Or get angry about how they do damage to themselves? Why is that? Because we're rotten parents? No, because we love people. We love our kids. The reason God gets angry is because he loves. And he hates for his kids to be beaten up, especially when they're doing it to themselves. But what he does is instead of putting that anger on the kid, he puts it on his only begotten son. The wrath of God on Christ was laid. That's how we know he's just to forgive us of our sins. How do we know he's faithful? Oh, man. This is a, oh. <laughs> Guys, are you coming? Josh, would you come? <laughs> oh, there you are! <laughs> Eric, this is why I was so excited about how we're closing today. Okay? This is, this is why I was so excited. Because we know he's just to forgive us of our sins because of Christ being the propitiatory sacrifice. Right? The wrath of God is satisfied. You know why he's faithful? Because he's a father. And I got to confess to you, I, I, in my getting older as a Christian, I lost sight of how life-changing it is to trust in God as my Father. And so when he says, little children, he's drawing near. And he's, as, as a father, is faithful to forgive. He keeps his promise. I've kept my promise to you. Of course I forgive you. Of course, I forgive you. He's our loving father and we're his little children. Now, would you stand, but keep your notes. Take your note to your feet with you. So when I, when I was asked to speak at that conference called God the Father, which God used to ring my bell big time, I want to encourage you. Jeff Packer has a great book, and it's a really first Johnish book. It's called Knowing God. It's an old classic. I want to encourage you. Why don't you use that as a as a, a little 
study to read as we're going through 1 John. And one of the chapters is about the father heart of God and what it means to be sons and daughters of God. So I'm going to read this uh, over us. So this is that last quote. Packer says this, what is a Christian? Uh, the answer can be answered, and the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Father is the Christian name for God. To those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving Father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. As wonderful as the truth of justification is for the believer, and so that's that propitiation. Propitiation is why we're justified, okay? But listen to what he says. This is so cool. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Oh, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. Oh, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. He says, if I were to summarize the gospel in three words, it would be adoption through propitiation. And I think that just really carries that sense of 1 John chapter 1 and the beginning of verse 2.